0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we started, we were in John chapter five, we're going to be continuing in John five. And we talked last time about these three different responses that we saw at the end of John four and in the beginning of John five, the way that people reacted to Christ. And it's sort of under this larger context of what holds people back. You know, a lot of us here were not raised in a religious background. We were kind of hostile to Christianity. You know, Xenos has this reputation as sort of the church for people who don't like church. And, you know, we were held back by things. But then a lot of us have come to Christ and realized that, you know, God is so much better than what we were told and so much better than what so many people who claim to be Christians seem to represent and then you get, you, know, you get to know God and you get to study the word and you get to see what God is really about and you get like, oh man, how can more people know and see the truth of what I see about who God is and what's holding all these people back? And it gets frustrating and sad because so many people's critique of the Bible and critique of the God of the Bible is not based on who God really is, it's based on lies or ways that God has been misrepresented to them. And so there's lots of things that hold people back. We looked at these three responses, and we looked at the royal official who was sort of the positive example last week, and, you know, he didn't really see his need until his son got sick, and then that all of a sudden opened the reality of how helpless we are, how fragile life is, and got him seeking out God, and he didn't really know what God was like. You know, he had had these religious examples and he'd been raised in a culture that had very formal religious canon. A group of people that had, had, had very confidently issued forth what they believed religion is and what they believed about God. But that was very different when he was confronted with Jesus Christ and who he is. He saw a very different picture. So he needed help and then he also got some reasons Jesus not only helped him, but gave him reasons to believe in the reality of who he was, and he came to faith. Then we saw the man by the pool who saw his need. He had been ill for over 30 years, stuck by this pool, just hoping for a miracle. He knew he needed help. But the circumstances and the pain and the suffering of his life had caused him to grow hard-hearted and cynical to the point when Jesus walked up and said, hey, do you want to be healed? He was like, well, I can't because no one will help me we saw that he had this extreme focus on self. He didn't care who Jesus was. Even after Jesus healed him, he was like, I I don't need to know your name. He went and reported him to the Pharisees because Jesus had told him to pick up his, his mattress and walk. And the day happened to be the Sabbath, which is the day that God says is a day of rest. And the religious... Pharisees of this day had interpreted rest in this sort of extreme religious way where rest means, you know, you can't do anything. You certainly can't pick up a mattress and carry it. And so they confronted him. And we see that, you know, that hard-heartedness, there was, there was nothing that was going to sway him. You know, he, there was no amount of need. There was no amount of reason. There was no movement of God or reasoning of God or power of God that was going to get him to change. And then we looked at the group I want to focus on this morning, which is the Pharisees, who are these religious rulers, these deeply committed religious men. And, you know, the issue with them essentially is that they thought they knew God, right? They thought they were representing God by enforcing God's law, God said, don't work on the Sabbath. And so, boy, were they going to enforce that? You couldn't cook. You couldn't clean. You couldn't go to your, out into your field. You couldn't spit in the ground because that might make a little divot and that could be like plowing. You know, they were going through all the details of, you know, the ridiculous minutia of what that meant. And then they thought that by enforcing that, they were pleasing God. Like God would be like, oh, good. They're not going to spit on the ground either. How pleased am I? The Pharisees thought they were right with God. They thought as they take the rules of God, the law of God, and they apply them in the, strict, the, the most strict fashion possible, the more strict they were, the more pleased God would be. And they thought they were leading others. They thought they were being great examples to others. And yet what happens is God comes and actually is in front of them. And they completely miss it they don't even recognize who he is because they have taken the idea of god and the word of god and turned it into something that is the actual polar opposite of who the creator is jesus would say a lot of a lot of harsh things to the pharisees these were the group of people that he actually attacked the most by far he said in matthew 4:15:14 4, he said leave them alone they are the blind guides of the blind And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. They're putting themselves forward. It's like they know what they're talking about, but they have no idea. And so they're an active form of deception who is leading people towards something that they don't know. He would say in Matthew 23, and and one of the harshest things that he would say to them, and this is said directly to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because you travel around on sea and land to make one convert, and when someone becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. (laughs) I can't think of anything more horrible. Like, you know, think about that. But this, this quote of Jesus to the religious rulers of his culture because Jesus was Jewish. And this is the human leadership of the Jewish religion. And what he says about them, I think, perfectly encapsulates what so many of us feel about religious people in our day. You know, we just feel like they're hypocrites They're the blind leading the blind. They clearly don't know what they're talking about. They're clearly advancing themselves. And then when they go and they convince other people to be like them, that's a loss for the human cause. And that's exactly how Jesus saw the religious people of his day. So when we ask that question again, then what holds people back? Why can't people see what so many of us see? Well there's there's quite a bit that's going against that. You know, this is one of my favorite bumper stickers of all time. As a pastor, you know, you get really tempted to have a bumper sticker like this. <laughs> and it's a sentiment, you know, you look at that and you're like I get it. I understand why somebody would feel that way. You know, we are imperfect. We are flawed. And we've done a lot of harm. A lot of people claiming to be representatives and followers of God have done a lot of harm in the name of God. Throughout history, I'm not just talking like on television today, I'm talking about this has been going on for a very long time. Uh, Gandhi is purported to have said, now you might be like, well, I Googled this, Ryan, and it is controversial whether he said this or not. Well, I did too. Uh, but there are, there are uh, books where uh, he's quoted as saying this by Christians that he had conversations with. And it's in the Washington Post. So all I'll say is, even if he didn't say it, he's encapsulating something that I think a lot of people feel. He says, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And I think that, you know, that is a... A really poignant way of saying how what a lot of people feel is a lot of times they, they don't think their problem is with Jesus, it's just with the way that people interpret Jesus' teachings. And so, what holds us back is sort of this misunderstanding and this sentiment and this example that's been held forth by religious people. And a lot of those religious people are far more, far closer to the Pharisees, even though they are now Christians. They're far closer to the Pharisees than they were to Jesus. And Jesus's words to the Pharisees should, for us as believers, be something that we take very seriously. Because how do we know that if Jesus showed up today, that he wouldn't be very sad and disappointed with the way that we're representing him? It's something that should weigh heavily on our our thinking about our impact on culture. So the Pharisees are very interesting to study. They, they're looking for the Messiah. You know, and part of why they're so zealous to you know, follow these rules and interpret them in the strictest way is because Israel had generations where they ignored the law of God. And God rebuked them and allowed conquerors to come in. And now they're back. They're their own nation. And you can see why they're like, okay, there will be no idol worship. There will be no... you know loose living. Israel must be righteous. And their motivation to do that is to kind of avoid the mistakes of some of their ancestors. They're dedicated to the Bible. You know, they may not understand it properly, but they are certainly taking it and the words of the Bible and, and applying great weight behind them, some more weight than others. You would have to say they're certainly earnest in their desire to be righteous. They are trying to be good. They are trying to say that, you know, we should live according to the moral code of God. The problem is, is that, you know, they're believing that they're doing a good job of it. And, you know, we have to be fair. Some of them are closer to God than others. If you go back a couple chapters, you see that Nicodemus kind of sneaks in the night because he doesn't want all his Pharisee buddies to know he's going to talk to Jesus. And he has this conversation, and Jesus is pretty rough with him. But Nicodemus does become a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, there are people with this religious mindset that are self-righteous and doing all these things. But, you know, when they get the chance to see the truth, they are teachable too. And that's pretty important, you know, when we talk about a group like this, to remember that, you know, there are, there are individuals that are struggling with these things and have different levels of teachability and willingness when it comes to God. So we get to John 5, verse 15. The guy who had been healed went away and told the Pharisees that it was Jesus who had made him well. So he turns Jesus in after he heals him. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, right? And we talked about that last week, how they missed the whole point. The man had been miraculously healed after 37 years of illness. And the point that they're hung up with is he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. That is more important in their religious mindset than the fact that God had just done a miracle. And so they turn on Jesus and they're like, we knew it was you. He didn't know your name, but we knew it was you. We were just waiting. And this thing that you're doing is misrepresenting God, telling him to carry his mat on the Sabbath. And Jesus replies, he says, my father is working in town now, and I myself am working. Which does not help the situation. Jesus is not trying to smooth things over here, right? Right? What is he saying? When he says, my father, he's talking about God. And he says, God works on the Sabbath. So I work on the Sabbath. And we read, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. We've moved from persecution to murder. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God so they hear this i mean they're probably expecting you know they're going to confront jesus and he's going to be like i know i shouldn't be healing on the sabbath and i told him to carry his mat i'm sorry guys and they'll be like well just don't do it again and he's like no you're wrong your view of god is wrong and everything you think about god is wrong and i'm right because i'm him and they're just like wow We're going to have to kill him. (laughs) So I think the first question we should ask here is, was this a miscommunication? You know, maybe you've taken a Bible is lit class or you've watched too much History Channel and you've been confronted with one of these guys who are like, well, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. That was something that was applied to him later by, you know, his followers. He would be horrified to think that people thought that he thought he was God. And people who say that have never read the Bible. They do not know what the Bible says, and they do not understand the culture in which the Bible is written, because there are so many examples where that is just so untrue. And, you know, did Jesus intend to hear, is what he's trying to say to the Pharisees is, I'm God. Well, if we continue through chapter 5, he just begins to lay out his argument as to why he is God to the Pharisees. 519, he says, whatever the father does, the son does also. We do the same stuff. 520, he says, the father shows all things to the son. I know everything that God knows. 521, the father gives life and the son gives life. God is the source of life and can create life. I am the source of life and can create life. 522, the father has given all judgment to the son. Now, this would have really set them off because they knew their Old Testament, right? And the Old Testament says things like Psalm 75, 7, it is God alone who judges. He decides who will rise and who will fall. And Jesus is like, yeah, God gave that job to me. That's my job now. 5.23, the son will be honored like the father, meaning that the son is worthy of the glory and the honor of the father. And... 5.23, you can't honor the Father if you don't honor the Son. And what he says is, by the way, if you love God, you have to love me. Now put yourself in the Pharisee's shoes. It's like, wow. Wow. You think you're God. And Jesus is like, yeah, haven't I been saying that? What, What aren't you getting about that? And they're like, there's no way. There's no way he can be God. He told a man to carry his mat on the Sabbath. He can't be God, so he must be a lunatic, a maniac, a charismatic cult leader that we have to kill. And then Jesus takes this whole section of his argument here to them, and he sums it up this way in 524. Truly, truly, this is something that Jesus says when he really wants to put a point on it, an exclamation point. Truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me, has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. My word, Jesus says, is how you have eternal life with God. And if you don't accept me and you don't accept my word, then you do not know God. You are not spiritual. You are not godly. And you can imagine, you know, how that sits with them. This was not a misunderstanding on the Pharisees' part. They, you know, they came to the proper conclusion, if Jesus is not God, he's saying all these things and all these terrible ideas they have about Jesus would be correct unless Jesus is God. And so, you know, they're essentially saying, look, man, you cannot heal And you cannot tell people to break the Sabbath law the way that we have interpreted. And Jesus just comes back with, "Um, I'm God, I know all things, I'm the ruler of all things, and I'll do what I want. That's what's happened here. And then he goes on, and the rest of what I think is a very fascinating part of Scripture. And Jesus makes the most comprehensive argument Anywhere in the Bible where he's arguing to the Pharisees why they're wrong. And that's what we're going to study here. So we get to chapter 5, verse 37, and he just starts breaking it down. He's taking the Pharisees to school. He says, And the Father who sent me has testified about me. What is he saying there? He's saying, You know, you should look and you should think about what God is saying. How is God speaking? Through my miracles. You just saw an awesome display of the power of God. A man was healed. He was healed on the Sabbath. And then he was told by the person who healed him to pick up his pallet and walk. And so what you're against here is you're against God himself showing you the reality of who he is. What about that? You guys aren't even wrestling with what you can see, the incredible evidence that is right in front of you of the power of God at work. He says, you have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in your heart, and you do not believe in him whom he sent. He's saying, look, you guys do not know God. Your concept of who God is, this thing that you've made, the most important thing in your life, this thing that you are, you know, dedicated to is not who God is. You don't know the first thing about God. You wouldn't know him if he was standing in front of you. In fact, he is. That's the point that he's making, right? And so he's making this case. He says, the number one problem that you guys have is you don't know that you have a problem. That's it. I'm the doctor who came to heal the sick. And you are desperately sick, but you think that you're doctors. You have to understand that all humanity is broken. All humanity is fallen. And that your whole shtick that you've built around my word and my teachings, my scriptures is completely headed in the wrong direction. And if you could only see who God really is, then it would change everything for you because it would also show you who you really are. And the way that we start a relationship with God is by realizing we have a problem. And you believe that you are the answer. And you're not. He goes on in 39 and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these that testify about me. You take all this comfort by reading the word of God and applying it in the strictest possible ways and then convince yourselves that you're worthy of God's acceptance because of how strictly you have adhered to it. But the laws there, the morals there, the the things that are there to teach you about right and wrong are there to show you that you are imperfect, that you can't live up to God's level, up to God's standard, because God's standard is perfection. That's why those rules are there. And when you come to the conclusion that you can't do it, then you're supposed to plead for mercy and say, God, help me. I can't do this on my own. I try, but I can't do it. And God says, now I can work with you. And so you take the scriptures and you make them your path to righteousness. But what you don't understand is the scriptures are supposed to show you me. They're supposed to show you that you can't do it, that you need help, that you need God's mercy and God's love, and God's forgiveness. And Jesus is saying, that's what I'm here to show you. And this thing that you're relying on, you're missing the main point of it, which is me, Jesus Christ. You read the Bible, but you don't understand it. You emphasize certain pieces, but you miss the most important parts. The Bible's about love, kindness, charity, justice, mercy. It's about moving toward other people and helping them, not lifting yourself above them and judging them. And you've completely missed that and just pretended like there was some way we could live up to God's standard. And you've lied to yourself about your ability to do that. And you're trying to convince other people that they can do it too. You're trying to create a prideful path to acceptance by God, but the only way to God is through humility. And so you have completely missed the scriptures. He says, and you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from man. He's saying this humble path is one that you have to come to and in, in, You have to know that you have a problem, you have to know that God is good, and you have to open your heart to letting God come into your life. And all you do is try to impress upon other people how spiritual you are, how great you are, so that you can elevate yourself. And that's not how a relationship with God works. He's saying your interest is in enriching yourself and elevating yourself and your status before men. And, you know, you think about the religious people in our day and what do they do? And it's not lost on me that I stand up here where I'm paid to stand in front of hundreds of people and talk for an hour. You know, and thinking about, you know, how does that work? You know, how do you stand up in front of a bunch of people and say, you know, this isn't about... You know, getting money and this isn't about elevating yourself. Well, one thing I could tell you is, you know, as we talk about the budget of our church, you know, no one is getting rich here. You know, the top paid people in our church make the same as a high school teacher. And, you know, we've done that because of passages like this, where, you know, you need to be able to make a decent wage, but people should not be getting rich by being representatives of God there's a place for career ministry yes but you know just enough to you know live a decent life and then with the status thing, I mean, there's all, all people who are, get into ministry and who do these things, get into situations where it's like, you know, people are tempted to put them on a pedestal, or they tend to look at them, and then they feel like they have to live up to that. But, you know, we have so many pastors who share that role in this church, and frankly, all you have to do is get to know us for about five minutes, and that will destroy any impressions of greatness that you have. Myself included chief among them. You know, there's a, there, there's, that is dispelled by relationship. You know, this isn't something where, you know, it, you, you create an illusion of righteousness and then you keep everybody far enough away that they can't see the reality of who you are. You know, there's plenty of people in this room who can testify to you about my shortcomings and my problems. And that's the way it should be. Because it is only God who is great. He goes on and he says, but I I know you. That you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. You're so much more interested in what people think about you. And you're not interested in loving them. That's what this is all about. Loving other people, loving the people that God has made in his name. 1 John 4, 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Love is inextricable from being spiritual. And think about the examples of the Pharisees and think about the examples of the people who are put forth as religious, uh, great examples of Christianity in our culture today and ask yourself, are they loving people? Are they people that are moving towards other with peace, patience, kindness, and self-control? Because that's what spirituality is supposed to be. Verse 44, he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the father. The one who accuses you is Moses. In whom you have set your hope. You understand what he's just said there? To them like Moses is like the top guy. He's the guy that wrote the first five books of the Bible. Moses. Who brought the tablets of the commandments down. Moses is their dude. And he's like your problem's not with me guys. It's with Moses. Because Moses believed in me. And Moses wrote about me. And everything that Moses wrote points to me. You can see why they were just like, oh my God, we have to kill this guy. He says, for if you had believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Your problem is, is you really don't believe the Bible at all you believe a perverted, bastardized version that has been corrupted by the teachings of men. The writings of the scriptures themselves are what Moses wrote, but your understanding of them and your application of them, this religious, uptight, frumpy, judgmental, self-righteous, self-aggrandizing, selfish religion that you have built is the exact opposite of what God gave us through Moses. So what's the point? His case to the Pharisees is that they take a part of the truth. They take something that has some value, that is from the actual word of God. And they believe that God is righteous, that's good. And they believe that God judges evil, and that's true. And they believe that God decides what's right or wrong. You know, there's a lot of people in our culture that would have a problem with all of these things, right? And the Pharisees didn't have a problem with any of those things. So they're right, but they're also so wrong because they leave out the idea that God wants closeness with us, that God loves us, that God is eager to forgive, that God is kind and compassionate and merciful. And that God wants us to love one another. That the thing that's supposed to define our religion is love. You can be like, I don't know if I agree with this, guys, but they sure care about people. That's the kind of critique that we should be hearing. Right? But that's not the way that people in our culture view Christianity. They view it like they're so cold. They're so self-righteous. They're so judgmental. They're so condemning. Those are all the Pharisee things, right? Whereas if we were accurately representing God in our culture, what they would say if they hated God and they hated the teachings of God is I hate the teachings of those Christians. But I gotta admit, They're really nice, and they do a lot of good things for a lot of good people. That's what the hardest-hearted person should be able to say about us. But they can say so much more because we've done such a poor job of representing who God really is. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, he wrote, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I become a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith as to move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. That's the God of the Bible. You can be a great speaker full of wisdom. You can be a martyr and give your life. You can give everything away that you own and sell it to the poor. But if you don't do it with love, then you have accomplished nothing. No amount of faith, no amount of obedience, no amount of trust means anything if it's not accompanied with love. The Pharisees had obedience In some way, they maybe even had faith, but they left it divorced of love, and look what God said to them. Woe to you, blind guides. Woe to you. You don't know God. You don't know his word. You don't know me. And you don't know God's love. And that is the critical ingredient that makes everything else make sense. And so we started our time here talking about that question, what tends to hold people back? Well, there seems to be far too few examples of real biblical love in our culture, in our world, you know, and I look at this, I come up with something like this to share with you, and I think, well, I'm not that good of an example either, so why am I saying that? And I think it's because we have to do better. We have to strive to be more loving people. And you know, we need to accept that you know, we are going to fall short and we're going to fail and we're not doing as good as we could do. And we need to not you know, take out of that that God's unhappy with us because God is love and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But let's determine together that we can do more. More love, bring more love into the world, that we need to take this all to heart. Putting ourselves aside more in order to give of ourselves to others. You know, asking ourselves the question from time to time, why do we do what we do? Why are we here this morning? That's what we do on Sunday morning. We go. Everybody in my home church is going to be there. Want them to realize I was missing. Did we show up this morning driving on the way here, praying God give me a chance to love somebody, show me an opportunity for the hour or so that we hang out afterwards, to bring real love into someone else's life? And when we say Amen here, are we going to be looking for that chance? Or are we going to just be looking to hang out the appropriate amount of time so it doesn't look like we're trying to scuttle off to whatever it is that we have next? Make the most of the opportunities that we have. Think about where we misrepresent God, where we are a part of the problem. You and I are a part of the problem from time to time. And there are people that know that we are supposedly followers of God and we have not represented him very well. And think about minimizing that. Think about changing that. Think about the times where you had the opportunity to represent God. And you just let go. It's not that you were a bad representative. It's that you were no representative at all. That probably happens more than anything. And that's so terrible because there's such a need. The world is longing for something real, something meaningful, to see real love and we are God's answer to that as his followers so we got to step up and yeah that's hard and that's scary I also want to say to you if you've been turned off because of God's followers you're here and by some miracle you're here and you've had a lot of bad experiences with Christians let's just let's just say you're in good company Not in the sense that, you know, we're perfect. That's definitely not true. But we've all had bad experiences. And yet we're here and we keep coming back because God is real. Jesus is true. And he gives us hope that we could be more and that we're on a path. you You know, sometimes people will say, you know, I'm walking with God. What does that mean? It means I'm on a path and I'm going somewhere, right? Where am I going? I'm trying to be more like him. I'm trying to let more of his love come into my life so that I can share more of that love with others. And I would say, you know, if you're skeptical and you've been hurt by Christians, please just remember that a prerequisite to being a Christian is being a failure. You can't become a Christian without realizing you have failed. And so we are a lot that um, fail a lot. Yet we will continue to try. We will continue to grow. And we will continue to try to be honest about those failures. And let us be eager to join Christ in setting a better example. I think there's four things we'll close with that we could focus on to get practical here. One is confession. And what I mean is is admit to people when you're wrong and admit to them when you screw up, especially the people that you're trying to be an example to. A Pharisee would never confess. A Pharisee would think, I can't tell you when I'm wrong because then you'll think I'm wrong in everything and you won't listen to me about the important things. Whereas somebody who knows that they are a fallen person can say to others, "I have a lot of problems. That way that I just spoke to you was not who I want to be. Will you please forgive me?" But that flash of temper that you just saw, you know, that that way that I didn't come through, that promise that I broke, whatever it is, be real with people about the fact that you're a sinner. And that will show them the reality of who God is. Compassion getting out into the community and caring about people who are not Christians and the suffering that's happening. And what can we do? Getting mobilized and getting out to do something about injustice. It's something that we can do and that we need to do more of to connect with and to demonstrate to people who have this wrong idea about who God is that his people care about everyone, not just their own. Service without expectation is also, I think, a key piece of this, where we go out and we serve, not to, you know, we're going to do this, you know, and then you're going to come to my church, or we're going to do this, you know, and then, you know, you're going to give me something. Just, I'm out to serve because God is about service, and God is about love, and I'm here to communicate as God's representative, this is what we're about. We're about helping make things better. And then finally, I think, taking a humble approach to God's word. You know, the Pharisees were dedicated to knowing the word of God, but not understanding the word of God. And I think that we need to come and say, what did did the author mean when they said these things? What were they pointing to? As opposed to, how does this reinforce the things that I want for my life? And I think if, you know, imagine how difficult it would be to be a Pharisee, if you were regularly engaging in these things. So there you have John chapter 5. Why don't we pray? Yeah, God, thanks for the example that you set, that we just look at you and we look at how you lived, even how you dealt with the Pharisees. And we see the reality of truth and love working together. And we just pray that uh, our time here this morning will be filled with that love that will be fruitful, and that uh, we can go out into the week with the mindset of just looking to you to show us the opportunities where we can be used to bring your truth and love into the dark places. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.